Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science I'm really happy to introduce my guest today. Her name is Dr. Camila Carlos Shanley. She holds a degree in biology from the State University of Campinas in near Sao Paulo in Brazil, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. And she also has a master and a PhD in genetics and molecular biology, also from the same university. And then Dr. Carlos migrated to the US and she did a couple of postdocs in University of Illinois and also in the University of Wisconsin until recently that she got an assistant professorship here at Texas State. Is that correct? Is that yes, yes. That was your journey? <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. Well, thank you for the introduction. <laughs> of course. So, Dr. Carlos, you and your lab focus on animal-bacteria interactions. So, I would like to start with some general questions and concepts that we will mention later so that people are familiar with it already. And I think we can all agree that bacteria are essential for our survival. Can you please tell us about some functions that bacteria provide us that without them we wouldn't be able to survive, please? Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you again for uh, inviting me. Well, I am passionate about bacteria, so I can talk about bacteria all the time, <laughs> for all, all day long. But the things that I, I can think that are the most important, one might be oxygen production, right? In the ocean, most of the photosynthetic organisms in the ocean are actually uh, bacterial, and they contribute to a large part of the oxygen that we breathe. Uh, other function that is um, that bacteria takes part is also nitrogen fixation, and that is crucial for the crop production and all the food pretty much that we eat rely on this uh, fixation, so basically taking nitrogen from the air and putting it into the soil in a form that uh, plants can consume. And the other one is just simple uh, nutrient, nutrient recycling, right? Without bacteria and other microorganisms like fungi, we would probably be walking, like nothing would decompose and you would be just piling on dead corpses <laughs> and, and things that, that so yeah. So pretty much essential. So they produce mm -hmm. the oxygen we breathe, mm -hmm. they assist plants in producing the food that we eat, and mm -hmm. then they recycle all our trash. So yes. impossible to live without bacteria, yes. right? <laughs> and, and can you also think about functions that are not so obvious that bacteria provide us, some unexpected service bacteria provide us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are, there are tons of different uh, examples, but one thing that I remember when I was, I think I was doing my PhD and it kind of like blew my mind, it was uh, related to the, the functions that some of the microbes that live in the gut, our gut, can do. And they can actually uh, release some um, 
some chemicals or some even some neurotransmitters that uh, um, can affect our mood. So they can affect like uh, they can have an effect in, in your depression or even other anxiety. So people are still studying this more, and it's still there's a lot of that is unknown. But it seems that there is a pretty uh, strong link between gut uh, bacteria and our mood. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Most of the our antibiotics are produced by bacteria as well, right? Yes, yes. Uh, so most of the antibiotics that we use nowadays were actually derived from a bacterial. Uh, genus that is called streptomyces that is found in soil, but it's found in other environments too, but mostly from soil. And they are really good producers of like secondary metabolites. And those metabolites, they can, that those are the ones that we use as um, most of the drugs that we use to treat other infections nowadays. So they produce the compound that helps us kill them. Yeah. Well, yeah, they don't kill themselves, right? So those compounds, they... They are, we think that they are used in nature for, for competition. So the bacteria, that's the way that they compete to each other. They don't, they don't have many options to like how to move or they don't uh, necessarily uh, eat each other. But the, what they do then to compete, they will uh, secrete some substance that will kill other species and then uh, leave more resources for them. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. That's super interesting. And there's something that we're going to, continuously be mentioning that I would like you to explain, please. And, and this is a pretty hot topic right now. And it's the famous, I think everybody must have heard about micro, the term microbiome. Mm -hmm. Can you can you briefly explain what a microbiome is or what the microbiome is? Yeah. So the the term microbiome is usually to used to refer to a community of microorganisms that can be formed by many different species of bacteria, fungi, archaea, even viruses. Some people might uh, add that, and that th that community lives in a determined like in an environment. It could, you could say soil microbiome, water microbiome, so basically the community that lives in the water, that community that lives in soil, but most of the times people use the term microbiome to, to refer to a community of microorganisms that are associated with a host, uh, like an animal or a plant, yeah. So Dr. Carlos, your most cited article in Google Scholars, I, if, if you type your name in Google Scholar, mm -hmm. the one that it's cited most, is the study that you published in BNC Microbiology in 2010, mm -hmm. in which you analyzed the phylogenetic distribution of E. coli strains and its application in the identification of the major animal source of contamination. And before we, got in, we get into the article itself, let me, let me please give some background information and, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. E. coli has been used as an indicator of wat water fecal contamination. And so the logic behind this study is that in order to act to revert this contamination, you need to be able to identify the source of contamination, right? Exactly. And here comes my, my first question that is a little bit unrelated to the study itself, but the concept of species is already complicated in animals and, and plants. I can't imagine in bacteria. How can you determine a bacteria species and how do you differentiate it from a bacteria strain? What mm -hmm. what are the main differences between a bacteria species and a bacteria strain? Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, the concept of species in, in bacteria is still uh, unsure. There's not much consensus of how to 
how do you like what is a what is a bacterial species, right? So most of microbiologists actually use a more operational uh, bacteria uh, species definition. What we call so what, what so what that means is that we still need to even though we don't know what is a species, we still need to differentiate. For example, Staphylococcus epidermis, that is a bacterium that is found in your skin and it doesn't cause any any disease, from Staphylococcus aureus, that is a is a bacteria that could cause a disease. And, and so we need to differentiate that. So how do we do this? Uh, so we use a definition that usually relies on um, similarity between DNA. So there are different techniques that you can do that, and there's, there are different thresholds that we use for different techniques. But for example, if you use genomic uh, information, so if you sequence uh, fully sequence the genome of two bacteria, you can compare uh, those, and then if they are like more similar than 95%, they are the same, we consider them being the same species. If they are, they their similarity is lower than 95%, then we say it's a different species. And basically a strain is anything between, it would be anything between like, uh, that is not identical, that is not 100%, uh, and because that would be just a clone. And then anything that is between uh, 100% or 99.9% and, and 95%. So it's kind of like a, it's a boring concept because we can use, because they are asexual and we can use the same concepts of the we, reproductive yeah. isolation mm -hmm. concept yeah. that we use in animals mm -hmm. or plants yeah but it's so i guess it's kind of complicated right because every time you you work with a bacteria strain do you have to make sure you're actually working with that strain or you have to trust the literature uh no yeah you usually you try to to make sure that you're working with that so that your strain. first your first thing would be to sequence the, the genome of the bacteria yeah or time. or a marker sometimes a marker. there is a, a like a specific marker for a specific strain but sometimes you also have uh biochemical uh like uh biochemical tests that you can do like there is a you already know the species but there if it it transforms a certain um, uh, compound and you know it's the strain. If it's not, then so there's sometimes there are some also biochemical or also uh, immune uh, assays too. So you can have anti antibodies that are specific to a strain. So that way if you have a, a reaction between an antibody and then bacteria, then you know it, that is the Yeah, strain. and I actually really liked the method they use for this particular study, which is because it's particularly simple, right? You looked at three different genetic markers mm -hmm. and you have kind of a map whether if, if he has this, it could be either this strain or this strain, mm -hmm. right? If he has the second marker, then it is this one or this one. And then you, you kind of have a, like a little chart in mm -hmm. which just by analyzing three genes, you can determine specific, specifically to which of the seven E. coli strains it belongs, yeah. right? That's that was the yeah. It's not uh, not exactly strain. It's born like a phylogenetic group of strains. So it's still it's a little bit. It's something between I would say uh, species and strain, <laughs> or it's like a group of strains. It seems that uh, it seems that E. coli has uh, uh, this phylogenetic groups that are very well established. Yeah, and you can using only three different. Um, markers you and the combination of those three different markers you can uh determine which phylogenetic group they belong to yeah and in this in this study you what you tried to do or and what you did really successfully it's to determine which particular phylogenetic groups mm -hmm. belong to which particular group of animals yes. right and i'm quoting here part of the methods of the the, uh, the study you have to collect 241 strains of E. coli 
that they were isolated from fecal samples of a variety of hosts. Mm -hmm. And this variety of hosts is different kind of animal farms and even human and sewages. Can you, I'm, I'm just gonna ask the question because mm -hmm. I think everybody's <laughs> thinking about this. Can you, can you talk us about the fecal sample collection? Please? Yeah, yeah there's, a, there's a lot involved to do with fecal samples, of course. So depending, if it's human, it's more complicated than other animals. If it's animals, you even, even if it's uh, like any kind of fecal sample you need to deal with, you need to make sure that your lab, for example, has biosafety level uh, two, uh, so you, can, you have protection and you can deal with that. But, but yeah, so for humans, it's, it's something interesting because you also need uh, like a, an IRB, some sort of like a permit to collect this, and you need a, a, a form, like a consent form. So you're gonna give the person a consent form that you're gonna use that sample for research. And then you give them like a little cup, <laughs> uh, just like those cups you get from the doctor. Uh, so, and then they go home, and sometimes they just do right away, but sometimes they go home and bring you the sample <laughs> in, the, in the next day. Uh, so you give like two, you, you give a cup and a little like Ziploc bag. And because we want to isolate bacteria from it, we want as fresh as possible. So we ask sometimes to like keep the samples in, in the refrigerator or like in, in ice if it's possible. Um, so it's not just walking on, on the farm and just collecting. <laughs> no. No, it has it, to be, there's a protocol, a specific mm -hmm. protocol that has a lot of bureaucracy behind, yeah. you know, behind collecting these kind of samples. Yes, and then for, uh, yeah, for animals too, it, 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 you might want to know that it came from different animals, so you sometimes have to wait till they, they defecate and you collect. But you don't need a lot. Uh, you don't need a lot of samples too. So if you, if you ever participate in a, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in in a research like this, you don't need to give a lot for the don't don't fill up the cup. <laughs> People are gener too generous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you? But you were involved. You were involved in that collection itself, right? Or, or uh, did you? No, I was not. So this this work we. We were working with an agency in Brazil that it's equivalent to the EPA here in the US and they were the ones that were doing the collections. Um, so, and then they would send, after they isolated the E. coli in their labs, they would send me the, the, the E. coli isolated and then I would do the DNA extraction and all the, the genetic tests. So, but I have participated in other uh, fecal, <laughs> fecal sample collections, yeah. Mm -hmm. And a really interesting result from your study is that humans are the ones that have more variety of strains mm -hmm. and, and also uh, pigs. And you suggest that this similarity is because of our omnivorous diet that both pigs and humans have. Yeah, I think uh, uh, it seems like it's a, it's a trend that a lot of people see, have seen that uh, usually humans have a high diversity of E. coli strains. And uh, we think it's related to to the diet because it seems that it clustered really well. So animals that have a, a more restricted diet, a more specialized diet, have less uh, diversity. And the animals that have a, a diet that they are exposed, just they're just exposed to more sources of uh, E. coli. So they end up being colonized for more uh, sources of E. coli, more, more E. coli strains. And yeah. And the major takeaway from this study is sort of a creation of a map mm -hmm. in which with little resources, 
you can identify which strains are contaminating the water and use this sort of map to identify precisely the source of contamination, which is awesome. It's an mm -hmm. awesome tool to have. And this was done in Sao Paulo in Brazil. How universal do you think these results are? Do, do you know if they have been applied either in Sao Paulo after you, you publish these results or somewhere else in the world? Yeah, yeah. This, uh, they tried, many, many papers have tried to, to use this uh, this the, this approach and and I am uh, even a co-author in one of those papers these papers that we actually analyzed uh, E. coli from all over the world and what we see is that there is actually like the pattern seems to be specific to different regions of the world so in in some like in, in South America in Brazil they are more similar to each other and then North America it seems like there has a different pattern uh, uh, and then Europe and Africa seem to have a very actually similar in Asia so it, it seems that the, even though you can still use those phylogenetic groups to identify the source of contamination it needs to have like some some background uh, information for, for the distribution of E. coli groups in each country that you're using. So you can use exactly the ones like that I that I published for Sao Paulo. It's not necessarily going to work uh, for Europe, but you can still use the same approach. If that exactly. That mm -hmm. The values that the method is, mm -hmm. the method works. So if somebody wants to use it somewhere else in the, in the world, they just need to tune it specifically to that region and then it could be a tool available, right? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. that's, that's super interesting. That's, that's amazing. And most of the audience might be a little bit grossed out now <laughs> because of all this. <laughs> I'm just going to take them to the other side of, okay. of, of the spectrum. You've studied antimicrobial activity of bacteria that are isolated from different Brazilian coral species. Mm -hmm. And this sounds like the dream job, like sampling in Brazil f in the corals. Is it as that or, or is it as good as, as it sounds? Yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, I didn't think it was wow. So after I worked with E. coli, I was like, so I told the PI like I want to change. I I'm really getting into microbial ecology. I think it's really cool to think about like specificity, um, and how different microbes can be specific to different holes. So. But I want to go to the beach. <laughs> so I decided that I want to work with corals. Uh, Was that the main motivation, really? People were talking a lot about corals at the time because of bleaching. Mm -hmm. And there was in that, well, that was in 2010 when the whole microbiome thing started exploding and the literature in corals was exploding. And I started reading a lot. And so I got really excited about it. Uh, so how maybe the microbiome could help to save uh, corals. So then I got a grant and I got to go to a couple times, more than a couple times, few times to, to the coast to collect. And it was really cool. Uh, we would go. Uh, I, the funny thing is that I don't know how to swim. I mean, now I know a little bit, but at that time I didn't know like at all. And <laughs> so, but I, I wanted to, to work with corals. But so I would go to this research station and they would have divers there so I could hire them. And then, I, and then I would go in the, the boat and go with the divers um, to the to the collection. But I would stay in the boat and help them every time they would bring the samples back. So I would process and put it in, in the right way. Not uh, knowing how to swim. Were you afraid on the boat? <laughs> yes. Uh, so, yeah. And the first time that we went, it was right after a storm. 
and the waves were huge like huge 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 so i was very very scared and at some point i thought we're gonna die (laughs) so and i'm not a religious person so but you know i I was like there in the middle of the ocean thinking that we're gonna die so i started like singing gospel songs and (laughs) in desperation you know but (laughs) uh but we got alive to the simple the the place that we have okay i'm maybe i'm gonna gross how your your (laughs) your listeners again but uh, and then yeah, so it was really the waves were huge, and ev- and even the divers were saying even under the water they wow. were getting seasick. Wow. Yeah, so you can imagine I fed I fed a lot of fish, <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> but it got better with time too, and if if and I got uh, more used to and there were cool things like I saw a lot of penguins because they get lost when they're like migrating from. Antarctica, uh, and they show up in Sao Paulo coast for some reason. So we ended up like seeing a lot of penguins, even though I was like in the middle of coral reefs. <laughs> That's yeah. so amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm super jealous right now, actually. Mm-hmm. Dr. Carlos, we're gonna need to do a little break. Dr. Carlos, what are we listening to? <laughs> System of a Down, yeah. Why, mm-hmm. why did you choose this song? Uh, well, I was I wanted to choose another one from them, but I thought it was going to be too heavy, so I just chose this one because it, it has like a good melody. <laughs> but I was thinking about prison song. <laughs> Today that I'll never miss. But it's kind of sad. <laughs> you like the me- um, uh, heavy metal? Yeah. Heavy I music a little bit? Yeah. I, I like hardcore a lot. But I do like, yeah, I, got, I like rock in general, I guess. Mm-hmm. Dr. Carlos, there's a, a recent study that came out from your lab in which you work with the Comal Springs Rifle Beetle. And this is a uh, beetle that is super interesting because it's endemic from San Marcos Springs. But unfortunately, since 1997, this beetle is considered endangered. And in the 2000s, there was um, like a, a program in which they started house housing these beetles in captivity, just in case something happens, right? Yes. And, and you did a study in which you compare the microbiome of the captive beetles 
versus the native uh, or the wild mm -hmm. beetles, right? First of all, can you can you tell us a little bit about more about this beetle? Yeah. So the the beetle, the Heteromus comalensis, it's a really tiny beetle. Uh, it's like as big as a sugar ant. And but they live they and they are aquatic, which is really interesting because they actually seem to have like their full uh, cycle, like their full development underwater. Um, and they they eat leaf litter. So they contribute to the recycling of uh, all the plant material that falls into the springs. So they, they eat like the biofilms that grow in the leafy litter and help with this recycling. Um, and what about this conservation project? Have they been releasing beetles to the wild or, or what's the plan? No, not yet. So right now they're just trying to uh, mostly what the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Edwards Aquifer Authority want to do is to establish a population uh, in captivity so they can uh, study them, study more of the biology, understand better them, but also have this population in case something happens. So the Edwards Aquifer is always like under threat of pollution and also over pumping and something could happen and they are only found in really few spring openings here in San Marcos and mostly in New Braunfels. But if something happens, then this whole uh, species will disappear and we will never know anything about them. So we need to, to make sure, one, that we study them and that we might have a population to repop. But they, so far, they haven't been released back. Yeah. That's pretty good mm -hmm. that we already have a plan in mm -hmm. case something happens. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised by the result of this study. I don't know why I was surprised, to be honest, but it did surprise mm -hmm. me. The overall, di overall diversity of the captive beetle microbiome is higher than the one in the wild. First of all, is this, from a conservation point of view, is this good or bad or, or not necessarily good or bad? Yeah, uh, well, we actually, we also got a little bit surprised, but I think it's because we all have this, like, preconception that we think, as especially if we, uh, like, like biology, we think that diversity is always good, right? Like, a higher diversity means good, but not necessarily when it comes to microbiome, and especially because you have this community that might be already in equilibrium, and if you have new members, uh, might disrupt this, and that's what we think it might be happening with the, the captive beetles and it seems like uh, other animals too they are starting to find that it seems like captive animals seem to have a higher diversity and do we know why that happens well we don't know exactly why but a lot of evidence is showing that it might be because of uh contact with humans so so they are becoming more humanized, uh, like their microbiome. This is starting to have more members that are normal to the human microbiome. They're starting to 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 uh, colonize them. Yeah. I was surprised to read that there's a hospital bacteria that was found in the beetle's gut. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, well, probably the bacteria was first isolated from a hospital, but it doesn't mean that the hospital uh, bacteria showed up there. But it, I think it's just like a uh, commensal, a normal uh, human bacteria that, that yes, the, not, is one of the ones that we found that is uh, associated with the beetles in captivity, but we don't find in the wild. Yeah, so... This shows how, like, uh, the, the manipulation, human manipulation can have an effect on, on animals, too. Dr. Carlos, you also work with termites. Mm -hmm. I like, there's a study in which you expose different kind of termites to, to different temperature treatments, so three different temperatures, 
and you you determine their survival and their gut microbiome diversity and, and survival as well, I guess, right? Mm -hmm. The first thing that it's, uh, I have to ask you is, it's going to be hard for termites in the future considering the global warming scenario. Uh, it might not be as bad as other insects because termites, at least the species that we're working with, they are subterranean. So, and under... Uh, under the, the the soil and like underground the, the temperature changes are not as extremes but it's still it, they might be very success, susceptible when the um, when there are like in small colonies but yes this it seems like they're very very sensitive to to changes in temperature so uh, small colonies of termites might be vulnerable but we have to I mean, and maybe people might think, well, this is good, right? Because who cares about, <laughs> I mean, termites just eat our houses and we hate termites. And it's true in an urban environment, we, we, they are pests. But we have to remember that termites, uh, they play a, a, a crucial role in the ecosystem by um, recycling wood, right? They are responsible, together with fungi, they're the, pretty much the only uh, uh, organisms that are able to, to degrade wood material. Yeah. So, yeah, without termites, it would be a ma major problem, right? Yeah, we would be piling, yeah, we would be walking on a bunch of uh, logs, yeah, <laughs> trunks. Dr. Carlos, you found that, that high temperature exposed termites, they show a reduction in the bacterial richness and a decreased relative abundance of the bacterial research, sorry, richness as mm -hmm. well. And you also found that there's a correlation with how well they tolerate high temperature. So this is a correlation. Do you think there could be a causal relationship in this correlation? And and let me, just for the sake of the audience, let me let me try to explain uh, something that it's it's not the same to have a correlation than to establish a causal relationship. So I remember uh, I had a statistics professor when I was studying my, my master's back home that he he told us about a study in which they, just to, just it's an extreme, right? It's, a, it's an example. In which they correlated the amount of storks in Germany and the amount of babies that were born in Germany. And of course, the, fu the funny association is, of course, storks don't, do not bring babies, but what happened, there was a clear correlation in the number of, of storks and the number of, of babies. So how, how can you explain this? And, and the point of the article was that people had more babies because it was an economic welfare uh, period, and therefore there was more money destined for conservation of these storks, yeah. and so there were more babies and more storks. So mm -hmm. this is just a, just a silly example to show mm -hmm. that correlation and causation is not the same. So sorry, sorry for that parenthesis. So do you think there could be a causal relationship in between microbiome and the ability to resist or to thermoregulate, to resist high temperatures? Yeah, that's what we are very interested in and we wanted to find out. Well, we still don't have evidence for a causal relationship. Uh, we are like, and the problem with termites that it's really hard to, to what we call like they are intractable for for microbiome uh, work because, uh, or really hard to work with because they rely so much on their microbiome they have like this obligate symbiosis with their microbiome. So we cannot remove the microbiome and then see, okay, this is how termites with microbiome respond to temperature, this is how termites without. And this is, would be the easiest way to establish a causation. But um, 
It's just no. not possible. It's yeah. just not possible with termites. So we need to keep getting more and more evidences uh, with other other experiments, and that's what we are trying to do. Uh, I, I mean, of course, I'm a little bit bacteriocentric, so I do. I do. F- that's what I think. Uh, I think the bacteria do play a role. Um, and if they, if they, sorry to interrupt, you, but mm-hmm. how how could it be that microbiome can control thermoregulation? Yeah. So think uh, think of that. Like temperature is um, is a factor that affects most of uh, like organisms, right? Including bacteria. Bacteria is really susceptible to temperature. And changes in temperature, uh, because the termites are ectotherms, that means that they don't control their body temperature. So inside of their gut, it will be the same temperature that is outside. And with different temperature, t- uh, the, the microbes in their gut will start producing different uh, compounds. So all those metabolites, those chemicals that they secrete and how uh, and like the enzymes that they secrete that help the, the termites to, to degrade, it will change, all this, uh, the biochemistry will change. And that could be an effect, it could have an effect in the host physiology uh, as we are seeing in, in the literature, yeah. That's interesting, that's mm-hmm. super interesting. Dr. Carlo, in the last episode, I had a, I, a guest that he was an expert in beef cattle nutrition. And one of the things he told me and, and one of the things in his lab they're working with is including amylolytic enzymes to cattle feed in order to help them digest starches better. And you have an article in which you study the, the microbiome community that would be best to degrade lignin or some compounds of lignin. Mm-hmm. And my question, and, and people in the audience would think I'm obsessed with yogurts or something, but do you think once you elucidate what the microbiome or, or the micro community would be, would be able to include it in a sort of yogurt and that include to animal feed to increase efficiency in digestibility? And it doesn't necessarily have to be in, in animals only, it could also be in humans. What, do you think is that even possible? Yeah, uh, I think so. That is definitely something that a lot of people are trying to work with, especially in cattle. Like, does this? Uh, uh, they say that it's like the next, uh, the next thing that we need to do with cattle, right? For example, they with genomics, uh, uh, the the advance of genomics has helped uh, like dairy production a lot. But now it's kind of like starting to plateau again, and because they have already like. Um, improve the genetics of the cattle a lot. So the people think that now what would they need to do is start to, to improve the microbiome and improve the efficiency of how microbiome. So yes, I think it would be uh, an interesting thing to think of like uh, developing some sort of um, supplement, right? Supplement to, to, to give to the cattle that would um, increase their, their, their digestibility uh, and then make them just get fatter and produce more milk or more meat. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Dr. Carlos, we have to go to a little, another short break. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Science Stories <laughs> Science Stories Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. It's been a long time coming, I'm coming back for you, my friend. To where we'd hide as children, I'm coming back for you, my friend. Though my memory 
to Carlos, what are, what are we listening to right now? It's a Brazilian band called Secos e Molhados. They, they were, I think, from the 70s, uh, but I think they're amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I actually really like their aesthetics. Mm -hmm. They, they, what, what, is it after a tribe, a Brazilian tribe that they... Yeah, I think they, they were trying to to really uh, embrace uh, a lot of the native uh, aspects of Brazilian culture at that time. There was still like there was a lot of influence from like America and in Europe, so they were trying to bring more influence from from native Brazilians. Yeah, so they they do like do some interesting paintings and yeah. Very um, alternative. <laughs> and before, before the break, we were also listening some listening to some something heavier as well. So mm -hmm. you like you have really a, an eclectic taste in music, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I actually don't listen to music too much anymore, uh, no, because I have a toddler, so I mostly listen to like the wheels on the bus, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of. But but when I do listen to music, I I, I tend to listen to things heavier. Uh, and very like from my teenage years, but I also listen to a lot to classical music. So I don't know. Yeah, it's a classic. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Brazilian popular music, heavy metal, mm -hmm. classic music, everything. Yeah. Yeah. All and, over the chi place. and children's music. Children's <laughs> music. Yeah. But that's I don't think it's your choice, right? <laughs> yeah. So Dr. Carlos, I I've seen that there are kind of two types of biologists or scientists, but specifically within biology. And one is the kind that marries, gets married to a particular organism and they study everything about this particular organism because they love it so much, right? It could be fish, it could be whatever you can mm -hmm. think, right? And then you study different aspects of these organisms and you're an expert on this organism. And, then. and the, other, the other type of, of biologist that I, I've seen is someone that is interested in a particular question or a particular type of topic but more generally, and they move from organism to organism, trying to understand how, trying to use this organism, use in the good sense, to understand the question they want to answer. And I think you f you fall exactly on the second <laughs> type of biologist because looking at your work, you worked with termites, you worked with corals, you were with sewages, you were with humans, mm -hmm. farm animals, beetles, right? There's there you also have an article of copper mines, mm -hmm. right? Of bacteria on on copper mines. Yeah. Briefly, can you tell us about that study? What, what do you do in copper mines? Did you have to go to the mines? Or? Uh, yeah, well, first, I think, yeah, I might have a undiagnosed ADHD, I think, <laughs> or something. But, yeah, I do change a lot. But, yeah, I did I did work with uh, biomining or, like, an organism that can be used for biomining when I was an undergrad. That was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so when I was an undergrad, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do uh like for research and then i was taking microbiology and i heard the terms like biofilm and bioremediation and i was like super excited about this and i started searching more these terms and trying to find people in the university that i was that worked with anything related to that and then uh, I found this professor and she worked, she had this project with a big mining company uh, to to try to optimize and understand better the biology 
of this bacterium that can be used to uh, solubilize metals from like ores so from from minerals that have like low content of those uh, of those metals so normal mining you usually can like get copper or gold from minerals that have like a, a, a huge quantity of those but sometimes you have some minerals that have like really low uh, concentrations of copper or, or gold and you need to like solubilize that so we use some bacteria that produce really acidic uh, um, like an environment that they they lead to a really acidic environment that leads to to the to the um, so, uh, solubilization of those 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 metals. So at that time, what I did, it was just like a simple, like, uh, oh, let's see how different metals affect the transcript, uh, the transcription of this operon. Uh-huh. Talking about unexpected functions from bacteria, right? Mm-hmm. Who, who, I don't think many people imagine they helped us extract metals in, in mines or something. Um, you also went to the Amazon, right? Because of your work, mm-hmm. you were looking. There's an, an article that you you published in Nature Communications in which you were looking. You studied leaf-cutting ants in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. How how was that experience? Was it as amazing as people imagine it is? <laughs> yeah, it was. It was better than I thought it was gonna be because. So here's the thing: I'm a biologist, right? Uh, but I and I love going to the field. I love doing field work, but I don't love being. I like I like comfort. You know, I like going <laughs> to the. <laughs> I also like bathrooms, and I also like bath taking showers. Yeah, I think people <laughs> imagine that all all biologists love yeah. to live in a tent and mm-hmm. sample and live in the wild, right? No, no, definitely not me. I love biology, and and, and as you can see, I love like all sorts of different living organisms and trying to understand things. But I, at the same time, I don't want to like wake up with a spider on top of me. So. <laughs> Or like so, there's some stuff that I have like have a limit. So I was a little bit apprehensive at first one, uh, one, but also excited like oh I get to go to the Amazon even though I'm from Brazil, I was never in the Amazon. It's such a like it's, it's really far from São Paulo and and I had this uh, privilege to to go to the to the to the Amazon with this group of biologists and it was amazing, right? Because then you you actually learn about uh, the forest and a lot of things while you're walking and, and talk. So it was amazing. And it wasn't, and, and, and we were lucky because we actually ended up staying, like in staying in a uh, B&B. So it, it, I had bathrooms. <laughs> <laughs> I was able to take showers. It was very comfortable, but we would go to the, to, to, to the forest every day and collection. We were trying to find uh, leaf cutter ants and other insects too. We were collecting, uh, and leaf cutter ants. They, they usually like that. We were looking for different kinds, and they are sometimes found like under logs. Uh, so we would have to bring like a shovel and like use uh, this this tool to to turn logs and look for ants under the logs. And you have to be really careful because when you turn logs, you can have like whatever uh, yeah, is down there, snakes, yeah. scorpions, spiders. So the whole, I think we were there for like 10 days and the whole time I was being like <laughs> uh, cautious. C- cautious and using my shovel and doing exactly how you were supposed to do. So you don't, uh, you don't, don't have any issues. But then uh, literally the last log <laughs> that I turned. It's always uh, the last one, right? <laughs> yeah, it was literally the last one. There was like a huge 
huge banana. I think, I think in the US they call banana spider or Brazilian banana spider, which are very aggressive. And yeah, they, they don't back off. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a huge one. It was like ready to go. And oh my God, I like I. I ran so much and I like screaming and like I was desperate because I I, I don't like spiders. That's the only thing I do. So, but it was still like a really amazing experience. So yeah, yeah. How cool is that? I, I would love to go to the Amazon one day. Yeah, and also leaf uh, leaf cutter ants are super interesting organisms, right? Mm-hmm. I I think I'll, I'll have to do an episode about them specifically one day. But I think we can we can tell people that. What can you tell them? What do they do with all the leaves they yeah. cut? Uh, so they are super cool because you see, I mean, they have they have some here in Texas too, but if you go to the to the to South America, you're gonna see a lot sometimes trails of these ants with carrying leaves and and bringing a bunch of them, and you think that they eat the leaves, right? But they don't. They actually bring the leaves to their uh, to their nest and they feed a fungi that, and then they actually eat the fungi. Yeah, so they are they 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 are basically farmers. Do, yeah, they're farmers. It's mm-hmm. amazing. And and why why were you studying them? So the the so they they have this really cool symbiosis with this fungi, right? That they that they co-evolved and it's a monoculture. So it's a single species that they culture. Um, so as any monocultures, usually they are very susceptible to to pathogens and diseases. So they actually. Uh, Evolved another uh, another cool symbiosis with a, an actinobacterium, a bacteria that grows in their exoskeleton, and that bacterium uh, produces compounds that protect the fungal garden against pathogens. So that selectively kills the there's a pathogen that that is also specific to the system, and and that that bacteria is able to kill that pathogen. So we were we were going there to isolate a bunch of uh, the the bacteria that they have and try to isolate no, new compounds to 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 see if they could have new compounds for for new antibiotics and new drugs in general. Yeah, we did find uh, like some good promising ones, but you know for developing. Um, Drug developing is a really complicated process. So it, you can in vitro, in vitro, so in the lab, you can find something that seems uh, promising, but it still has to go through like animal uh, to see if it's not toxic to, to animals. So it needs to go through in vivo uh, and see if it's still effective and and then go to clinical trials. And so it's a, it's a long way, but we do have some, pro- like that, uh, we do did find that at that time some promising compounds, yeah. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. So going back a little bit to, to the microbiomes, and this might be a little bit polemic and, and in the sense that we are, I'm gonna mess with the free will of people. <laughs> so there's a recent review that suggests that there's a lot of evidence that our microbiome is actually determining our taste, our taste perception. So what we th- what we like when we when we try something and we like it, it might be that it's not actually us who likes it, but instead our microbiome. What do you, what do you think about that? About that? Yeah. Uh, wow. Well, yeah. We're finding every every it's it's getting hard to keep up with the microbiome <laughs> uh, literature. Is getting uh, but. But yeah, it's something that definitely people. There are some people starting to 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 think about the the these questions, right? But I, f- I do think we still have some choices. But uh, 
but the microbes do do seem to play uh, an interesting role in in a lot of things that we, that we do, and yeah, it, it seems like that they can change the appetite and like the things that you you might like. I think I think this is really cool. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. What about the heritability of our microbiome? Yeah. So all the evidence so far seems to 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 point out to very low heritability. What that means is that uh, it's not necessarily determined by our like uh, genomics, right? Like for by our genetics. The the gut microbiome that we show that we have the com the community that you have it ne not necessarily is determined by your genetics. But, or it's like really low, just some, but uh, that doesn't mean, and some people, some critics might say, well, that's why, like maybe, like why are we studying all the, try to understand the functions of the microbiome? It should have like some sort of co-evolution. If there was co-evolution, you would have a, a strong uh, genetic uh, influence, right? But I don't think that that's important necessarily, right? You don't need to necessarily co-evolve with uh, an organism to affect them. Like for example, humans, we didn't co-evolve uh, with like the, the rifle beetles, right? But our activities affect their survival because- 100%, yeah. Yeah, so like there, even though like we might have uh, things that are not co-evolved, but their, their byproduct, the, like their activity might end up uh, affecting other species. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Dr. Carlos, since you come from Brazil and you're living in the US now, do you mind if I ask you a little bit of more personal questions? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, is there, have you seen a lot of differences between the way science is done in Brazil and the way science is done here in the US? Yeah, there are tons of difference, but um, well, I can speak more about like science in academia, right? Uh, so how it's done in universities mostly. And I think one of the major differences is that like in Brazil, most of people, most of people that go to uh, grad school, they actually have a fellowship. Uh, so they receive their own fellowship. And then while in the US, a lot of the people uh, have to, uh, teach, right, like for the university, IA or TA. And that changed a little bit like the dynamic because you have like less time available to do your research. But at the same time too, in Brazil, for example, you have less resources and everything we need uh, comes from US, right? So if you're gonna buy an enzyme, like a TAC polymerase that you have to do a simple PCR, it's gonna maybe come from US or you have to produce yourself in your lab. So it, everything takes a long time. So <laughs> all this time that you save by not teaching, may, you lose by like waiting three months for, for a kit for to do anything. <laughs> well, that's definitely a mm -hmm. difference, right? Mm -hmm. And in your personal life, did you have any big cultural shocks? Because there's a lot of talk about cultural shocks. Mm -hmm. Did you Do you remember having one? Yeah, I, I have uh, probably a lot, but one thing that I still not used to in US is like how the culture, uh, it's so uh, focused on having a card, like right? you need dependent on a card to do anything. So uh, uh, 
it's really hard to go to the grocery store if you don't have a car uh, to do anything. So, so that was something that I really struggled since I came to U.S. But I also have reverse cultural shocks. So when I go to Brazil, sometimes I think things are weird there. For example? <laughs> well, uh, I think like lines in general, you know. <laughs> Jump in the line? Yeah, like Brazilians are really bad on like just respecting lines and doing things right. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> so the idea of this podcast is to show the um, I don't know, I don't know how to say this in a in a nice way like the human side of scientists mm -hmm. right because I I feel sometimes people there's a myth around scientists and, and we f they think that we are some kind of robots or something right mm -hmm. and for example last a couple of episodes ago, uh, ago we had the do director of robotics from UT and one of his his hobbies was to play rugby. Oh. Which is kind of unexpected, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as as you react. Yeah. yeah. What are your hobbies? Yeah. So recently, uh, one thing that I was not into that I like it was arts, like uh, plastic arts, and then so I I start getting into like acrylic painting. Uh, I never thought I was good. I never liked it before because I felt like I'm I'm just terrible, right? Like the, all this thing I paint are just horrible. But then after I just like let it let go, you know, like well, I just like the the brushing and like the seeing how the the the, the colors mix and all that, and just let it go. Then it became a really enjoyable hobby. So it's one D of my favorite. Do you get some inspiration from your bacteria? Yes, I do. I yeah, yeah not only from bacteria, but I do get a lot from like microorganisms. I usually I like going outside and get lichens and try to paint the lichens. I think they're so beautiful. Yeah. Nice. nice. <laughs> Dr. Carlos, did you have a good time? Yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Of course. Mm -hmm. Do you mind if I ask you one last question? Yeah. Do you think Brazil has any chance of beating Uruguay <laughs> in Qatar in the next soccer World Cup? Uruguay, maybe, but... <laughs> I'm laughing because Brazil has the best team right now, and Uruguay, yeah. al although we rebuilt a little bit, it's not quite there yet. <laughs> yeah. You think Brazil is going gonna, gonna to win the sixth one? I don't want to get my hopes up, because after the, the World Cup that was in Brazil, my heart was shattered, and I just... Don't want to get my hopes up, but <laughs> let's see, let's see. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Science Stories.